The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. As we move on to the next uh, stage in the history of uh, New Testament uh, textual criticism, you notice that I've given it the title, Putting It All Together. And uh, what I'm getting at is that once you get to the 19th century, particularly about the middle of the 19th century, the uh, discipline has reached a, a stage where because of all the work that has been done in collating manuscripts, in systematizing the evidence, in developing criteria and methods for textual criticism, the time has come when now people can finally try to uh, produce a new edition of the Greek New Testament, starting basically from scratch, which attempts to reproduce as closely as possible the original uh, text of the Greek New Testament, uh, certainly much more so than, um, much more accurate than Texas Receptus was. The names that we're going to be dealing with, uh, first uh, Karl Lachmann, Karl Lachmann, who uh, finally fulfills Bentley's uh, dream because he's really the first scholar uh, well, someone has done almost something like that in, in England, but uh, in terms of recognition, Lachman is the first scholar who actually edits an edition of the Greek New Testament that is not based, in one way or another, on the Textus Receptus, but which attempts, as I say, to critically reconstruct what uh, the, uh, the text must have looked like, like at, at the earliest possible stage. And, um, you know, today we look at, at the work that Lachman did, and uh, you know, we realize that it was a pioneering effort, and um, it's not as reliable for our purposes as we might wish. But when you consider it in its setting, it was a very, very significant uh, development, and it made possible... Uh, much more significant work in the uh, decades that followed. Tregelis is the other, another name that I want you to um, have some appreciation for. Samuel Prideaux Tregelis. Again, Metzger gives you more detailed information, but he was a um, relatively poor Englishman who had some remarkable intellectual gifts. And um, Pretty much on his own, he carefully investigated the data, and, and he realized that uh, the Texas Receptus was not a sufficiently reliable uh, text. What he did was to publish a specimen of what he thought needed to be done. At that point, he was not 
thinking that he would be the one to do such a thing. He was just trying to encourage scholars to uh, look at the material and to consider the need to uh, come up with a new text. You see, he was not aware of Lachman's work at that point, but the need for a new work that um, would indeed replace the Texas Receptus. Well, he um, went on, at one point he says in his book that I have referred to before, from that time, I kept the object of editing a Greek New Testament before me. I have increasingly felt the importance of the object, believing such an undertaking, if entered on in the fear of God, to be really service to him, from its setting forth more accurately his word. He went at it. He uh, did some laborious collations of manuscripts and eventually completed an edition. And his edition went through five different editions, uh, so he kept revising it. Um, <clears throat> reading um, that book, uh, Tregellis' book, an account of the printed text of the Greek New Testament, can be quite a spiritual experience, actually, because as you read, especially at the end of the book, uh, you just don't expect a technical work of this type to uh, you know, issue in a homiletical uh, message on, on the importance to study the Bible and, and to uh, rely on the Word of God and this and the other. It's quite, uh, quite remarkable. The third name, Tischendorf, is really the most significant of the three. A... Um, a man of prodigious memory and perception. You know, I think I mentioned something about Tischendorf's ability to, uh, to read these palimpsests and stuff. There's an anecdote which apparently it's true, uh, at least partly true, that uh, when, his, when his mother was pregnant with him, uh, she happened to be walking down the street and um, saw a blind man walking on the sidewalk. And, you know, people at that time thought that if, if, uh, if a woman is pregnant and sees somebody with a deformity, that the baby will, you know, have that deformity. So this scared her to death. And she began to pray day and night, pleading with God not to allow her son to be blind. And uh, people think that she prayed so hard that uh, Tischendorf was born with the supernatural powers of vision. And uh, he could see things that nobody else was able to see. Well, <clears throat> as you know, he's the fellow who discovered the Codex Sinaiticus on, uh, on that monastery in Mount Sinai. He made many other discoveries. But uh, in addition to the discoveries and his diplomatic uh, this and the other to be able to uh, you know, purchase them and get them to libraries and so on, he produced a massive, massive uh, edition. Massive because the critical apparatus sought to include virtually every important textual variation that was known uh, by that time. The text itself was not bad. In other words, his own reconstruction. He was a critical text, which uh, was his own reconstruction. But uh, whatever you think about the text, what is wonderful about this particular edition is that in, in the footnotes, in the apparatus, 
you know, they're very, very, they have a little bit of text and a tremendous amount of information in, in the footnotes, so that it allows anyone to make up his mind, you see, as to what, uh, what you want to do with this particular variation, because you can see uh, the uh, attestation for the various uh, variants. His, uh, the, the eighth edition, the eighth edition is the one that became the standard work produced, uh, I guess, the last quarter of the 19th century. And you need to uh, know that to this day, to this day, over 100 years later, Tischendorf's eighth is still the fullest uh, edition of the Greek New Testament when you're talking about recording uh, the variants. Now, of course, it's terribly out of date because it doesn't include the papyri, among other things. And uh, at a later point, I will be giving you some more information about publications that, that have superseded Tischendorf's, for at least for some books of the New Testament. But when you think of the New Testament as a whole, uh, Tischendorf is still our primary source. As you may have gathered from Metzger's uh, book, Tischendorf, too, was impelled by his sense of the sacredness of the task. I mean, he's the one who writes letters to his fiancée, very romantic letters, uh, telling her, you know, about this wonderful stuff about textual criticism and, and how... Um... <laughs> now, before we move on to Westcott and Hort, let me just draw some conclusions about what we have looked at so far today. All prominent textual critics, all prominent textual critics prior to Westcott and Hort believed that the Textus Receptus was not the most accurate text you could have. Of course, there were differences among these folks, um, differences as to the extent of the necessary corrections and this and the other, but there was a strong consensus, almost a unanimity, that a new critical text was needed. From the very inception of the story, if you go back as far as Erasmus, so from the, from the work of the man responsible for the Textus Receptus itself, there was a realization that textual criticism was a necessary discipline and that in a sense it would be a permanent work. You know, this you, you would always need to keep doing that work and trying to come up with a better edition. This to me is very, very important because uh, there are a number of people out there who either believe, if they don't believe, they certainly give the impression that the Westcott and Hort, when they came up with their edition at the end of the last century, this was, you know, out of the blue. You know, one day, Hort uh, was reading something and, and he got very mad at the Texas Receptus and he decided from that point on he was going to destroy the Texas Receptus. And this kind of the picture that, that's given to people out there. Uh, well, not at all. Uh, when Hort comes to doing his work, you know, all of this stuff has been done and, and uh, people involved in textual criticism, 
it's true that there were a number of, of biblical uh, uh, scholars who were not really very familiar with manuscripts and so on that uh, would not have thought along these lines. But virtually everyone who was actually doing work on textual criticism realized that you needed to do the sort of thing that Wesk and Hoare decided uh, to, uh, to do themselves. A question somewhere? Yeah. Erasmus yeah. only had a half dozen. Right. And, and Why everything but those? <coughs> yeah, I'm, I'm not sure that I catch the precise way you... You can, you can uh, produce a text choosing wow. any combination of witnesses right. with or without the ones that Erasmus um, used and, uh, and come up with a... Yeah, with the Greek New Testament, yeah. Yes? Lachman and Tregelis did their work independently of each other. Lachman produced his uh, text before Tregelis finished his. By the time, see, he didn't know Lachman was doing this, and then all of a sudden Lachman's edition comes out, and by that time Tregelis had spent so many years that he thought, I can't just stop here, I might as well come up with mine, which he did. And in a sense, it was a competing, uh, but not in the bad sense of the term. You know, there were two, two different scholars using somewhat different perspectives and principles. And it is interesting that working independently, uh, you know, when you, when you compare their two editions and then compare that with the Texas Receptus, how many things they were agreed on over against the Texas Receptus. Tischendorf comes a little later, and he is able to use the work of Lachman and Tregelis. And, and build on that, yeah. Now, who were Wescott and Horde? Well, Wescott and Horde were part of a, um, of a trio, uh, not a musical band, but something much more exciting than that. Um, the third individual, uh, Joseph Barber Lightfoot. Uh, students have accused me of bowing my head idolatrously when I mention the name of Lightfoot, uh, but he is uh, probably the greatest New Testament the scholar that um, God has given his church. And uh, the three of them uh, who were at Cambridge decided to um, come up, produce a commentary on the whole New Testament, and so they parceled out their, um, their responsibilities. Lightfoot uh, was uh, in charge of the Pauline letters, and he was able to, uh, to do the commentaries on the shorter letters, Galatians, Philippians, Colossians, and he left notes on uh, some of the uh, larger letters. And um, wonderful, wonderful um, material. Westcott was responsible for the Gospel of John, which he produced also. Uh, Hebrews he completed as well. Um, Epistles of John. Forget what else he was responsible for that he did not complete. Hort was responsible for many other things, like the other Catholic letters, the Catholic epistles, Revelation, and I think maybe the synoptics, but I don't recall. The problem was that as they went about their work, they became more and more conscious of the need to make sure that the commentary was built on a reliable text. So Hort, with the help of Westcott, 
decided to spend a, quite a bit of time first establishing a new Greek text. And they assumed that, well, this is going to take us three or four years, and then we'll do the commentary. Well, 20 years later, <laughs> uh, their text comes out, and by that time, I assume, Hort was totally pooped out and wasn't able to, to write his commentaries uh, on, the, uh, on the New Testament. Lightfoot, uh, in his commentaries, although he did not exactly produce a new text from scratch, he did have lots of uh, text-critical comments, so his text is not simply the Texas Receptus. There's a lot more to it than that. Uh, Hort, in particular, was really quite a remarkable person. He, uh, in Britain, uh, read for mathematics and uh, the classics, kind of an unusual double major, particularly in those days. Later, he did work on moral theology and natural science. He was a very promising botanist, actually, and um, wrote an influential essay on Coleridge, so he was also very much into the humanities. So uh, he was a remarkable person, no doubt about it. You need to appreciate, I think, that in his text-critical work, Hort was less a creator than a synthesizer. Less a creator than a synthesizer. That was the point that I was just making, that uh, this was not a brand new idea for Hort, and that he was not by any means starting from scratch. He was simply building on everything that had been done up to, up to his point. And, but because of his very powerful you know, analytical mind, he was able to synthesize all that material, to give it clarity, to come up with a scientific method that could result in a coherent and reliable work. When finally, and by the way, he was the more prominent of the two, we, we called the Westcott and Hort text, but as a matter of fact, everybody recognizes that Hort was the primary individual, and he was the one who wrote the introductory volume. Now, the, the, the work came out in two volumes. The first volume is actually the text of the Greek New Testament. The second volume contains the introduction, which is a very extensive description of the methods, and also an appendix with uh, specific comments about many passages. And um, what I want to do, and this is a very, very important part of the course right now, and it is not real easy stuff because you know, there are concepts that maybe you haven't thought about before. Don't worry if, uh, if you don't catch this stuff uh, right away. We'll, in effect, go over it two or three different times in the next um, a week or so. But um, I want to give you some idea of how he goes about in the introduction to that text explaining and justifying his principles and his methods. He's, yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, the works of Tregelis and so on, uh, by the word, Tishner, Tish I don't think, had yet completed his work when uh, Westcott Hoare got started. Uh, and maybe even Tregelis, trying to remember when Tregelis' first edition came out. Uh, but you see, these were uh, some individual scholars coming up with their text. And uh, it isn't as though their text had been generally agreed by everybody. 
And so they, they felt the need to come up with something that would have greater uh, persuasive power. And uh, I think part of what's going on is that there was a need for, in effect, this rather carefully worked out rationale, which nobody had done. And, and uh, this is what I want to uh, summarize for you here. He starts out in the introduction pointing out that apart from orthographic differences, which are totally meaningless, really, apart from orthographic or spelling differences, only one-sixtieth, only one-sixtieth of the words in the New Testament are subject to doubt. And by doubt, all he means is that they are manuscript differences that raise a question in your mind, which is the original text, one-sixtieth. And most of these variations are trivial. You know, the kinds of things that Bentley said that you wouldn't even notice in a translation. And so he makes the statement, quote, substantial variation can hardly form more than a thousandth part of the entire text. Substantial variation that people should have any significant doubts about can hardly form more than a thousandth part of the New Testament. Now, other people may have different judgments about this. But is it a thousandth or is it uh, you know, two thousandth or whatever? That's not what I'm interested in here. What, I'm, what, I, what I want you to appreciate is that Hort begins his introduction not by trying to raise doubts about the Bible, but by uh, assuring people that only that apart from a very small percentage of what you have in the, in the Greek New Testament, you can be quite confident that when you read the New Testament, you're reading the original. And, and I think you need to understand that, again, in the light of certain kinds of attacks and accusations that Hort was after destroying the Bible, this or the other, that's absolutely not true. Now, in, uh, in part two, in part two of the introduction, uh, which is entitled The Methods of Textual Criticism, we have the classic formulation of, uh, of modern textual criticism. This is, in a sense, the foundation for uh, almost everything else that followed. Uh, very important. It's one of these writings that the most scholars realize, yeah, this is, this is where everything was kind of proven and so on. Nobody reads it anymore, which is a shame because uh, there's a great deal that you can learn about uh, the right perspective and, and some of the kinds of issues that come up when you're trying to make decisions yourselves. And uh, this is what I want to deal with right now at the bottom of the page there, the Westcott-Hort method. You notice there that there are three major stages, if you will, in the process. Internal evidence of readings, internal evidence of documents, and evidence of genealogies. <clears throat> now let me, at this point, tell you something that I will uh, get back to later. But just so that you know at this point, nowadays people use the term internal evidence only to refer to the, to the first item there, 
what the court calls internal evidence of readings. And the other two items are usually re, uh, described as external evidence, external evidence. Uh, I think the reason for that will become clear as we, we move on, but just so you don't get too confused in between uh, Hort's terminology and the way that people nowadays normally describe uh, these things. What is internal evidence of readings? Well, this is what uh, you might call the most in fact, Hort called it the most rudimentary method, the most elementary, the most basic. It is the one that, that takes you the least far, the least distance. But if you don't start here, where, where do you start? This is where you begin. And that simply means that you take each problem at a time. Go to Romans 5.1, for example, and you find some manuscripts say we have, other manuscripts say let us have. And now you begin to make a judgment as to which of those two variations is more probably the original. In order to make that judgment, you look at, at the problem from two sides. One side is called intrinsic probability. Intrinsic probability. The other one is called transcriptional probability. Transcriptional probability. Intrinsic probability looks at the problem from the perspective of the original author. In the case of Romans 5.1, you're really asking the question, what was Paul most likely to have written here? You look at the context, what seems to be the more natural of the two variations, which, uh, which fits more naturally the context. You take a look at Paul's style, the way he normally writes, and, and perhaps uh, that gives you some idea of, of what uh, he might have said here as opposed to something else. Look at his theology, his teaching in general, and, and use something that and choose something that fits that. So intrinsic probability, you're asking, I suppose you could simply call them exegetical questions, really, about the meaning of the text and, and what the author was most likely to have uh, done here. Transcriptional probability, on the other hand, focuses on the scribes that came later on. And you're really asking what kinds of mistakes scribes were most likely to have made. And at this point, you're really looking at grease box cannons, you see because you want to be aware of scribal tendencies or proclivities. Um, and here's where you think about, well, maybe the shorter reading is more likely. See, more likely, this is transcriptional probability. The more difficult reading also is more likely, and so on and so forth. The basic question that you're asking is this. Let's suppose you're dealing with two readings, like uh, the indicative and subjunctive in Romans 5. 
And you would ask the question like this. Which of the two readings was more likely to have given rise to the other reading? Which of the two readings was more likely to have given rise to the other reading? This is very, very important. And uh, it's, it's absolutely basic. What you would do is you would say, okay, here's the indicative. Now let's suppose the indicative was the original reading. Can I explain how the subjunctive reading came about? Uh, on the basis of, of the kinds of mistakes and that the scribes made in their work and so on, uh, can I explain the one, this one from the other one? And maybe you come up with a good answer or not. Then you look at it the other way. Now, okay, now let's suppose that the subjunctive had been the original. Can I explain how the indicative arose? And in a sense, you see, all these canons of textual criticism are ways of helping you answer that question because you're depending on your, your knowledge of what scribes normally did. Now, all these are probabilities. You, know, you cannot come to, to an absolutely definitive conclusion uh, because you're dealing with exegetical questions, interpretation, and, and so on and so forth. And um, the real problem here is that sometimes you do your intrinsic probability bit and on that basis you choose variant A. Then you do your transcriptional probability bit and on that basis you choose variant B. And now there is this problem. You have a conflict between one and the other. And Hort said, now you have to be careful here because you know, some of your be best scholars, you know, they're not bad people or stupid or anything like that. And yet they have different opinions. They come to different conclusions when they're talking intrinsic probability. Uh, in that sense, transcriptional probability perhaps is a little bit more objective because now you're looking at the tendencies of the scribes. But even that, you have a problem. Sometimes you have a, a paradox that um, the um, intrinsic inf uh, inferiority, it's not, let me put it this way, yeah, the intrinsic inferiority may be evidence of originality. For example, when you use that expression, the more difficult reading is to be preferred, some people get very offended at that because it's, it sounds as, oh, so you mean that, that the scribes were smarter than Paul. And Paul comes up with a harder reading or the more difficult one, and the scribes have the clearer, the better reading, and so on and so forth. But Hort says that's only a superficial uh, way of looking at things. Because what you're really looking at is this. What reading may have appeared clearer or better to the scribe? That's really a slightly different question, you see. A reader, without going at it in, in, great, uh, in great depth, might choose a reading which uh, looks better to him at first. But perhaps after you do the hard work, you realize that the other reading has greater weight. But still, after you've done all this, if that's all you do, uh, that's just very rudimentary, very basic. You're taking a problem at a time and trying to make a determination 
on the basis of intrinsic or transcriptional probability. So you have to go a step further. And this is what he called internal evidence of documents. Internal evidence of documents. Uh, the reason why scholars today would refer to this as external evidence is that now you're looking at, at the value of a document as opposed to uh, just the, uh, the details of the text itself. <clears throat> Hort argued as follows. And in fact, this is the, one of the great mottos that he's known for. <coughs> Knowledge of documents should precede final judgment upon readings. Knowledge of documents should precede a final judgment upon readings. Knowledge of documents should precede final judgment upon readings. What's he getting at? Well, it's actually very simple. If you decide to make a final judgment on Romans 5.1 simply on the basis of internal evidence of readings, the intrinsic and transcriptional arguments, you don't have very much to stand on. You ought to withhold final judgment until you have a good idea of the documents where the respective variants are found. Now, you could use the analogy of the court of law, which helps a little bit when comparing textual criticism with what happens in the court of law, although you cannot press it too much. For example, when I told you before that uh, with transcriptional probability, you asked the question which variant was most likely to have given rise to another variant. That's something like um, having a motive. You know, you have to prove a motive. Uh, for, for what has happened in the course of the, trend, of the transmission. But um, now, when I'm speaking about the knowledge of documents should precede final judgment readings, it would be akin to not simply asking somebody you know, to give a testimony on some event. You have got to know something about this person, this witness. Maybe this person is an inveterate liar. Or maybe this person throughout his, his life or her life has given evidence of being a person of integrity. You see, you're not just taking the fact of the testimony, but you're taking that fact and putting it in some kind of framework. So what he's saying is, you have to have some idea whether a particular variant is found in reliable witnesses or less reliable witnesses. Now, how in the world do you determine whether a witness, a manuscript, is reliable or not? Well, here's where things get a little difficult, perhaps, uh, but uh, this is the way that he went at it. He was a scientist, remembers, remember, <clears throat> and he says, okay, what we do is, let's take, and I'm giving you my own, this is not exactly the way he puts it, but let's take 10 100. Let's take 100 passages through the New Testament where there's variation among the manuscripts, but where the decision is fairly easy. What decision? Well, internal evidence of readings. Uh, let's take 100 cases where the decision is morally certain. You know that expression that was used quite frequently in the 19th century, 
you're morally certain of something. You can never be absolutely certain, but it's very close to in a court of law without reasonable doubt. That's morally certain. Uh, so that if you take a passage, let's say Romans 5, 1 again, and let's suppose that every textual critic that looks at it, oh, of course, you know, it's indicative instead of the subjunctive. That's not the case there. But let's suppose it were the case. Well, then you choose that one because it's a fairly easy problem. And then you decide on these 100 cases, uh, which is the almost certainly to be the, the true reading. Now, what do you do? You take, let's say, five manuscripts. Let's call them A, B, C, D, and E. And you see, and you check to see whether the manuscripts agree with you in your judgment about these 100 readings. Remember, they are very easy readings, relatively easy problems where we can be quite sure of the original. And you find that manuscript A agrees with you 90 times, but B 80 times, C 70 times, D 60 times, E only 50 times. What uh, Hort is saying, look, manuscript A gives you the better reading 90 out of 100 times, where manuscript E gives you the better reading 50 out of 100 times. That means then that when you're looking at some other problem, not one of these 100 ones, but some other problem which is more difficult to solve, you do, you do not only do the internal evidence of readings, the intrinsic and transcriptional probability bit, but before you make a final judgment, you take into account your knowledge of the documents. And if you find that a reading is supported by A, you might give that, you would give that reading a little bit more weight than if it is supported by E. Again, it does not definitely prove anything. But now you have a broader base you have a little bit of additional information that should not be ignored, but that should be taken into account. Yeah. No, no, they're Greek manuscripts. They are Greek manuscripts. Okay, let me, let me do it again here. <clears throat> um, he has already gone through 100 passages where he knows that there are variations among the manuscripts, such as Romans 5.1. And he has already made a determination as to which is the better reading in those five, 100 places. Okay, now he takes manuscript A and he checks those 100 passages in the New Testament to see whether manuscript A gives in each of those passages the reading which Hort has already determined is the better reading. And then what happens is you get a relative weighting a relative weighting of the manuscripts. You know, there are other factors, obviously, that you take into account when you, when you form an opinion of the value of these manuscripts. The age of the manuscript, whether the scribe seems to have been a good scribe or not, uh, how well done this thing is, is it consistent, all these things you also take into account. But uh, that, that's not sufficient because a scribe may be a wonderful scribe and yet be copying a bad manuscript, you see from a bad manuscript. So you're trying to get a sense for the value of the text in that manuscript. 
and this is the way he went about it. Then he had a little system to kind of double check what he was doing, uh, which sounds like a circular way of reasoning, but that's what science is all about. You know, it's not exactly circular, but but you, you, you have to begin with something, then you try something else. If it supports it, you move to the next stage, and, um, and you have to believe that if, if you have a consistency throughout the process, that uh, you are on fairly firm uh, ground. But now, um, you still are proceeding, even after you've done this second uh, stage, you're still proceeding in what uh, Hort called arithmetic fashion. Why? Because now, let's suppose that um, you have these five manuscripts and you're trying to make a decision on, on a particular problem and you find that um, uh, these two manuscripts support reading X in a passage and these three support reading Y in the same passage. And then, what do you do? Well, there's a majority of manuscripts that are better or something. And uh, that's not, you know, totally trivial, but it is still just purely arithmetic, as he put it. And, and you've got to have something more. That's why he went on to this next item, evidence of genealogies. Evidence of genealogies. Evidence of genealogies means that uh, you're really trying to get a much better handle on the text itself of a manuscript. Not just on the manuscript, but on the text, because um, <coughs> let's suppose here's the original, and now you have uh, copies of copies of copies and so on. And um, let's suppose that, uh, again, Romans 5.1, that all these manuscripts, no, let's do it differently. Let me put this one. Let's suppose that all these five manuscripts have the indicative and this manuscript has the subjunctive. And you might say, aha, here are five manuscripts against one. And not only that, but these are earlier manuscripts. This is a later manuscript. So let's go with the indicative instead of the subjunctive. But if you find that the geneolo genealogical uh, process was like this, it completely changes the, the situation because guess what? Well, these are earlier manuscripts, but they were copied from two manuscripts that were later than the master copy of this one. And besides, since these three depend on this one, these two depend on this one, it's not five against one, but only two against one, really. Now, the genealogical method is an attempt to try to establish genetic relationships among the manuscripts that allow you to get some sense of what the history and the connections uh, of the manuscripts are. Now, you almost never are able to come up with this kind of a tree diagram for a variety of reasons. 
But uh, you do the best you can. And if you find, as you can find, that certain manuscripts are organically related, how do you determine that? Well, usually, if there is a commonality of readings, especially readings that are obvious errors, <laughs> uh, it's like um, you know, checking if, if students cheated on the test, particularly multiple-choice test, which I don't think happened here, by the way, but um, uh, if you're suspicious about that and you compare two exams, the fact that they have uh, the same answer when the answer is right, but if you have a pattern of wrong answers, uh, that's usually a telltale sign. And that's true also with manuscripts. If you have common mistakes, they usually indicate an organic connection. And uh, so you can come up with certain patterns. And once you have those patterns, you can make a determination about uh, in these families of manuscripts, which seem to be the most reliable families by, again, doing you know, a little trick of, of checking a variety of readings to see where they, what, which side they, they uh, come down on. So that's the, the approach called the evidence of genealogies, where you're trying. You see, you're expanding your base. Initially, you start out with just one problem passage. Then you went from the one problem passage to the evidence of the documents as a whole so that you can make your decision not in some atomistic fashion, individually, one by one, but in the framework of a larger bit of information, namely the quality of the manuscript as a whole. And now you go to the third uh, place that broadens even more, not just a whole manuscript, but a whole family of manuscripts that may have uh, a greater weight than some other family. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, sure. The fewer the copies, the, the less chance for errors to be introduced. Yeah. Sure. And that's part of what's involved in all this, by the way. Uh, I gave you just the, 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 the one um, um, process that uh, seemed to weigh heavily and hoard. But obviously, any kinds of patterns that you can find are going to be uh, valuable in evaluating um, general physiognomy, if you will. Yeah. Inscriptional? Inscriptional. No. Maybe I, I might have uh, uh, misspoken myself, but intrinsic and transcriptional. Intrinsic and transcriptional. Basically, all you have is examine the manuscripts themselves and see what kinds of patterns uh, you find in their mistakes. Yeah. Uh, records of, of how they reconstructed? Uh, basically, all we have is what is in that introduction, and that is one of the criticisms that uh, some people bring up, that we do not really know how much actual work with the manuscripts uh, Hort might have, uh, might have done. And we'll, I'll say a little bit more about that later. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. They didn't. It's not that they stuck with them. It's that they, they confirmed that particular, and, and actually it was more than that, and I'll say a little bit more about it. Uh, before the end of the hour, I just wanted to say a couple of things. I did finally uh, get your papers read. I apologize for being so late. Um, and partly because of that, if you were late with your papers, I didn't take any uh, points off for that. 
which I realize it's unfair because some of you may have killed yourselves to get them on time. But, uh, you know, what can I say? I'm just a softie. Uh, <clears throat> just so that you know how I do these papers, I start out assuming that it is a B paper because I just assume that all of you probably can write a B paper. And then it's really up to you to prove to me that it ought to be an A paper or a C paper, for that matter. And some of you prove very well that it might be a C paper. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> that also means that, for example, sometimes if I, if I give a B, I may not have any comments because, you know, it's, it's a fine paper. You did the work, it was fine. And I don't have any obvious problems with it, but when I compare with some other papers that maybe were better written or had more content or so on, I felt that I ought to give a, a better grade to them. That, that's basically what's going on. Usually I try to give a little bit of an indication of, of the areas that uh, you, you might have been able to improve and so on, but it's not always easy to do that. Uh, they'll be in your mailboxes today or tomorrow whenever the, the office is able to, uh, to do them. Um, the other thing is, remember, there's no class tomorrow, and uh, there is a paper that was supposed to be done on the 12th or something, right? Huh? 12th, which, isn't that a Saturday? I don't know what I was thinking. But anyway, um, you're not going to have all the information you need for it by, by, the, by that time. Um, 